Hello and welcome back to Our Generation On Air. My name is Alex Bullimore and I am joined by two of our fantastic regulars today. It's uh, Lucas Ross and Micah Chudley. Guys, welcome back. Evening, Alex. Good evening. Fantastic to have you on. Um, so with the international break halting club football for the third time this season, we have slightly less to talk about. No previews this week, I'm afraid. So firstly, we'll look back at our game against Blackpool and then we'll be moving on to a sort of topic of the week. And we're going to be looking at the atmosphere and noise generated at the Kyan Prince Foundation Stadium. Is it a problem? How can we fix it if it is a problem? So firstly, Blackpool away. What did we think about this game? Um, I thought, watching the highlights, I thought it was an alright performance. Um, I think definitely wasn't our best of the season, but by no means our worst either. I think we've been waiting for a refereeing decision to go in our favour, and in their offside goal, we got just that. Um, I think Willock's goal was um, absolutely beautiful, just curls it in off the post. Absolutely sensational. Will will be shortlisted for goal of the season. Getting it is another story, but it will be shortlisted. Um, and penalty. It's an avoidable mistake because I think if Dieng doesn't bring him down, he can they score anyway. So it's a matter of do do you bring him down and risk um, a card, yellow or red, or do you just let him on through and score? Um, but yeah, and no, I think it was an all right performance, and I think one-one was fair. Micah, what's your thoughts on the game? Um, one of the weirdest games I think I've I've seen us play in that we we it never really felt like we got going, even when Willock scored. What was Lucas rightly said one of the goals of the season. Uh, it just, it just even after that, it just kind of felt like we just didn't get started at all. Um, in the absence of Dan, I will bang on about how awful we look when we're being pressed. Um, Neil Critchley's um, obviously come through the uh, coaching setup at Liverpool, and you can sort of see the uh, the clock influence on the way that Blackpool press. Uh, and once again, it was another story of we just, you know, we couldn't seem to get our passing game going. We couldn't seem to do anything uh, with the little time on the ball we were given. Uh, in, in terms of the penalty, um, I, I did think it was quite soft. I understand the ref has to give it. But I think he's gone down very easily. Um, but it's 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 Barbe really. It's Barbe's touch. It's kind of um, kind of dropped Diang in it. Um, but tr- truth of the matter is, e- even even though it didn't feel like we got going, I would say we we have to we have to be happy have to be happy with a point really, all things considered, because it could have been a lot worse. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I think I'd probably agree with you though. It felt very flat the whole game. Having had a look at the stats, um, I don't know how often this has happened this season, but I can imagine that if this is not the first time, then it will be one of the very few occasions it does happen. We didn't have majority of possession for the 90 minutes, which, you know, obviously no, you never win games based on possession, but in our style of play, the way we like to get on the ball and pass it, you know, having majority of the possession possession in 90 minutes is crucial to the, to us succeeding. Um, so I thought that was a big sort of sign of, you know, just a bit of underperformance perhaps. Um Let's take it right back to the start of that prior to kickoff. Team selection. Uh, I think Johansson was out of an illness. Um, so it was Amos and Dazelle as a midfield pivot. What what did we think about that selection? Would you have gone with, say, Don Ball over one of them? Um, probably Ball over Amos, to be quite honest with you, because Ball's the sort of midfielder who will just go in and try and win every, every last thing. But Amos ain't, ain't really that sort of guy. And Dazelle, obviously, as we saw against Cardiff, he passed the ball around really in quite a slick manner. And I think 
And we have someone who, and by having the ball and the Zell pivot, we have someone pivot. We have someone who goes in for everything, and some, and we also have a, um, a slick passer who doesn't go in for as much. But I think um, it, it's 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 in the midfield. It's just a matter of trial and error when Johansson doesn't get picked. Um, yeah. Kind of thought with this one, um, Amos was sort of back to the way he was playing against you know, in his first season with us, and like prior to the game where he got injured, where he really impressed. So it was sort of a game where he has this uncanny ability just to let it pass him by. I don't know whether that's harsh or not. I was only I was watching the game on my phone in the pub, so I may not get the full sort of experience. But I don't know. That's just how it felt. Like we didn't have any presence there, Michael. What do you think? No, I agree with you on the Amos point. I'm a little bit disappointed because I think that the cameos he's had in the past couple of games, I've been really, really impressed. Um, Blackburn, I think it was Blackburn especially, I've been really impressed. And I thought, you know, even with his injury, he looks like he's really come on. But Saturday was another instance of, like, just forgetting he was playing. Um, Really, really odd. Um, I I think it's, it's a shame, really that Johansson was ill because I think obviously Johansson and those are probably putting their best performances playing with each other in the Cardiff game in the week. So a um, little bit disappointing to see Johansson out. I'm, I'm not necessarily sure how much of a difference Dumball would have made because we just couldn't keep the ball and that's not really Dumball's forte as such. Um, but yeah, to be honest with you, very, very anonymous performance from Amos. Really disappointed, to be honest. Yeah, and with the sort of lack of any sort of possession comes a lack of threat because we only had just the five shots throughout the whole game and just one on target, which I guess was Willock's goal. So, you know, we seem to be in a little bit of a a rut at the moment. It's been an indifferent month. We won't talk go sort of into this too deeply, but has this performance and some of the performances this month got you guys worried a little bit at all that we're getting found out or that, you know, ideas are just sort of starting to run out from the team? I think um, while the injuries aren't helping, I think... Um, we are running slightly bereft on ideas and um, maybe a refresh of ideas, maybe some new thoughts after the international break might be ideal. Micah? Um, it's a tough one because I think there's an element of us not necessarily having, big, having been found out, but there's an element of I think teams kind of know what to expect from us. And there's another element of, I think, the plan B that we have or had was obviously for the wing-backs to sort of bum on for them to be that out, that out wide. And I think Odebajo, I thought he was all right against Cardiff, was probably his best game again. But Odebajo wasn't really giving us that kind of outlet on the right side and on the left side. McCallum obviously has been quite good and he has given it to that in essence. But obviously... He's out now, um, and we're missing we're missing Lee Wallace a little bit. I think Lee Wallace is just you, you know what you get with Lee Wallace, really, don't you? He's getting down the wing, he's putting across in the box, and then he's tracking back to deal with the opposition right winger. So I think really we we need we just need a little bit of something extra from our wing backs. To be honest with you, um, obviously Albert has been great playing at wing back, but. He, he can't play Wednesday, Saturday. He just can't do it. Like he does, he doesn't look like he does. He just doesn't look like he's able to do it. Um, Kakai, as much as I feel like Kakai comes in for a lot of unfair criticism, Kakai isn't the type of um, right back or right wing back that's going up the pitch and creating chances. He's he's a guy that comes in and keeps things solid and deals with the the opposition left winger. So I think it, it might be worth in January, maybe revisiting the wing-back situation and thinking, is there a way we can maybe get a little bit more out of them? Because at the minute, it just seems like we're really lacking in that area. Yeah, I think it's obviously, like you said, it's a 
position that's been hit quite hard by um, injuries and such. Um, the other thing I would say about it is that we seem to have our centre-backs on the ball quite a lot of the time. I can't remember which game it was. It might have been Blackburn, but Jimmy Dunn had a ridiculous amount of passes to his name for someone that is, you know, a centre-back at the end of the day. Um, do we think that perhaps just with the style of play right now, we've, we're not quite using the midfield to its best, regardless of whether the wing-backs are bombing on or not? There just isn't enough options there. There isn't, you know, there's something needs to change in that midfield, do you think? Because we're on the ball a lot of the time and then you look at Barbe, these guys at the back, they're looking for a pass out, but then they're not getting it. And in the end, they're just passing it between themselves. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that uh, I'm not sure Warburton is quite sure if he knows what his best midfield pairing is yet. Um, he, he's... He's gone between, obviously, Johansson and um, Ball, Johansson and Dozel, uh, and obviously now Amos has come into the team. And by the time we come back from international break, I'm sure Samfield will be in contention for a starting place. Well, if I, I don't so want I think to part... interrupt, but like on paper, we would probably say Field and Johansson are the best pairing, aren't they? But I get what you mean of like he's tried it a few different ways. Yeah, yeah. So I. I'm wondering if perhaps, you know, again, I don't want to put too much pressure on Sam Field coming back, but I'm wondering if perhaps when Field comes in, we're going to see like a little bit more of a sort of settled midfield, in essence. I, I'm not really sure. I, I guess I guess we'll see when he comes back in, really, won't we? Okay, so let's um, talk about one of the elephants in the room here. Lucas, you already mentioned it, the offside goal. Talk us through that. What what were you thinking in the moment? Did you think it was a goal? Did you think it was offside? Because we've had a bit of, un, you know, we've been unlucky and whether this is sort of things equaling it itself out or whatever. You know, but just explain what you were thinking in the moment because I was trying to rack my brains how this was actually offside. So um, I didn't, I actually end up not watching the game because I was at work at the time, but I watched the highlights as soon as I managed to get out of work at 11 p.m. And and I just saw that um, yeah um, they had an they had an offside goal and upon closer inspection I'm think I'm thinking to myself how is that offside the ball is over the line um, um, but I think some sometimes it's the it's the extra touch that cripples you and and in this case it was the extra touch that crippled us quite a lot because um, no that crippled them quite a lot should I say. Um, because it's, it didn't help them at all. If anything, it got the goal disallowed. But to be honest, I just, I just can't see how that's offside. Maybe Medine did an offside position, but I think in the Premier League, with, with all the technology around that goal gets given, simple as. Yeah, it doesn't, um, you know, obviously what we're talking about with the, you know, having bad decisions recently is the specific one against Sunderland. And it doesn't make that feel any better. It doesn't sort of wash that away. Um, it just goes on to prove the point that I think a lot of us were making post that game is that the officiating in the championship isn't quite up to scratch. And VAR, as much as people wouldn't don't like it, whatever, would solve that issue on both occasions. If there was VAR, we would have gone through in the cup and we possibly could have lost that game. You don't know. But on the balance of play, you'd probably say that Blackpool would have just gone from strength to strength from there. Um, you know, so it was deemed offside because Medine touched the ball as it went over the line. It was over the line, though. And because Barbe is beyond Dieng, the line is drawn from Dieng as the second last uh, defender rather than going from Barbe. So... I don't. I originally thought when it went in, I thought it was offside because Barbe was out of play and that that they were all beyond the last uh, last man, which would have been Dieng. I That's what I was sort of thinking. Michael, what did you think in the situation? Um, it's funny because similar to you, um, Lucas, my first thought was, "Oh my god, how on earth, how on earth have we gotten away with this one?" 
Um, I mean, I didn't really think much different to any of you guys, but it did get me thinking. I've not heard anything about um, goal line technology coming to the championship or any. I know VAR's a bit newer, but goal line technology has been in the Premier League for the best part of five years now. It's been in the championship as well for five years. It's been in the Premier League for like 10 or two, but it's been in the championship for like five. Wait, goal line technology has been in the championship? Yeah. Yeah, for many years. It just doesn't... doesn't goal line technology in the championship. Yeah, you just yeah. don't hear about it really? because it because goal line technology worked from the first day. There's no like apart from the one where it wasn't switched on against Sheffield United. If it's switched on, it works. So like there was or, no or con- all the cameras were blocked. Yeah, there's been very little controversy with it. That's why it's just not you don't hear about it. Whereas VAR made a load of mistakes when it first came in. So obviously it's very newsworthy, but because it actually worked, you don't hear about it. So how, how on earth is that goal been... Surely it would have been able to see that the ball was over the line when you touched it. I don't know. I, I, it's one of these things where can they use goal line... Te- there was no doubt that they knew that the, goal, the ball was going across the line. So he wouldn't be looking at his watch to see if the ball's gone over. Like that, Everyone knew it had gone in. There was not, No one was debating that. They were debating whether it was offside or not. So they can't really use that. They wouldn't know no, when it crossed the line... And when Medine touched it over and stuff like that, so it's not something that they would look at, basically. Oh well, well, I look a bit silly. I had no idea they had goal line technology in the championship, but but in terms in terms of VAR, I've heard nothing about VAR coming to the championship. And I mean, I know obviously there's been controversy around it in the Premier League, but I mean it's getting to the point where it's almost like Premier League games are being refed to a standard. And I'm not saying Premier League refs are much better. Premier League games are being ref to a standard and then championship games are like being ref like it's the 1980s still. It's just like, you know, how, how can you justify not yes. having um, VAR when every other big league in the world does? I, I just don't understand it. Exactly. Yeah. And in my books, the championship is arguably the best and the most competitive second tier in the world. And in, in, some, in some cases, it's, it's best in the Premier League. Um, but I think um, VAR will come to the championship one day. Um, but here's the thing. We still, haven't, we still haven't been in the game where VAR has been involved. That, that's mad just thinking that. We, have, we still have not used VAR at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? It's strange. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a small and, and I mean, in this, in this case, like, you know, obviously, had there been VAR, it would have worked against us. But I can think of, countless well I can't think of them now but there's been countless times over the past season or two especially under Warburton where had VAR come in results would have been different so it's obviously in this case it wouldn't have benefited us but as a whole I don't understand what harm that's going to do to the championship I don't understand why it has if it's a money thing I don't know but it's just, I suspect I it probably understand. wouldn't be a money thing because you're, it's less likely that say Peterborough who've come up this season they go back down to League One they're not going to be using it in League One how much would a club have to stump up to pay for VAR and how much are the league going to pay um, you know most of the teams going between the Championship and Premier League at the moment are sort of Fulham, West Brom the, these sort of teams yeah. yo-yo clubs they're going up and down all the time so they can invest in it have the facilities at their ground and then not have to worry about not using it for a couple of seasons. Whereas someone like Peterborough goes down after investing in VAR, suddenly they aren't using it, could not, might maybe not using it for like two or three years. Then it's just yeah, wasted money, point. isn't it? I think yeah, that's probably the, that's the hurdle for getting into the championship. But we all know that it would solve some of these decisions. The only thing that worries me about it is that you're giving already rubbish refs more opportunity to be rubbish <laughs> I guess like <laughs> the technology can work as much as you want but you get Keith Stroud behind the TV and you never know what he's going to do because he could still sort of just invent a rule which he's done in the past sure. um, so moving away from that um, where should we go to next yeah international break at the moment has this come at the right time for us with the injuries? Because I think Moses went off at half time, didn't he? That must have been another injury. What what do mm. we think? I think it's come at a pretty damn good time, to be honest, because 
we might not have been playing the best recently, but we're still sixth. Um, but here's the thing. Every single week this season, we have played twice. We have played two matches a week every week since the start of the season, barring the international breaks, without fail. Um, obviously, with a cup run and all that, um, we, we, cup run, um, but it's a cup run in our books. Um, we play two matches a week every week, and you can see you can see that the players are visibly shattered, and, and they just des- and they deserve a break. Um, so yeah, I think it has come at the right time, and hopefully, some of said congestion will relieve from this point onwards. Micah, some thoughts. Yeah, I gotta agree. I think it's come at a good time for us. Um not just in terms of injuries, but just in terms of like form and needing to regroup. I just think, you know, we've we've kind of almost like limped towards this international break. Um I think it's a good time for us to kind of obviously like Lucas said, we've been playing Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. It'll be a good like chance for us to get 14 days just uninterrupted where we can train. Uh, work on some things that clearly need working on. Um, and of course, yeah, the injuries as well. Like, it's, they're really starting to pile up now. So it's definitely a good time for us to have a break. So, uh, as you mentioned, there are some things that need to be worked on. Um, one of these things, would you be tempted to get Sunny Dieng in goal and just have him practicing penalties non-stop? Because... You know, yet again, he's conceded a penalty and, it, it, you know, penalties are very difficult. You can argue that they're weighted towards goal scorers rather than goalkeepers. But with the um, penalty shootouts that he has had to deal with so far, um, I think he's not saved 11 out of 12 penalties that he's faced this year. I, that's quite, obviously, that's a massive amount because of the two penalty shootouts. And there may be more games that I've forgotten about where he's conceded a penalty, but it was eight or seven against Everton, and then it was a further seven. three. Seven against Everton, then it was a further three against um, Sunderland, which he got nowhere near. He did save one against Everton, which gave us the chance to win the game, obviously. And yeah. then there was the one at the weekend as well. So, you know, from going from Smithies, who was so good at penalties, to someone that a goalkeeper that can't seem to get anywhere near them. Is this something that we should be, or is it worried about, or is it just because of the penalty shootouts and the pressure and whatever, it just looks worse than it actually is? I think, um, I think as a side, especially first half of last season before Austin came in from what I noticed, we gave away a lot of penalties and, and every penalty we scored okay um, against Cardiff last season, from what I remember. Their second penalty, Dieng saved, but they got the rebound. Um, I think um, he could, I think penalties could well be something to work on. And I think he could well re- do his research a little better um, to perhaps identify um, which way the take is going to go and how near he can get to it and his ability to save it. Because, um, yeah, it is, it is a bit of a worry. He's he's no Alex Smithies by any means, but um, I think in penalties, I'd like to see him save some penalties over the course of the season. Micah, what do you think? Uh, I would have him in training, working on pens, but I believe he's just tested positive for COVID. So, um, probably... Okay, in this hypothetical not... world where he's not got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> um, well... <laughs> um... I mean, it's something that he needs to improve on, surely, isn't it? Oh, massively, massively, massively so. I think anybody with any keeper with that record would be looking at that area to improve. Um, If I'm being honest with you, I normally tend to stay out of like kind of like goalkeeping discussions because I'm not a goalkeeper. I have absolutely no idea what it entails to be a goalkeeper. It sounds like it's probably the toughest position to play on the pitch. However, I would say that that 11 of 12 is conceded. It's, it's a very, very concerning stat, very concerning stat. And I'm sure that's something that he'll want to improve on. So that's all I'll say on that. I think the thing that worries me about it is if he was getting close to them, I'd be sort of like, OK, yeah, fine, whatever. But there is 
quite a lot of times where he's just diving the wrong way and getting nowhere near where the ball is going. Like he just clearly doesn't read the run up well. I don't know what it is, but he does need to work it out because it can be crucial at times. We could have stolen a win against Blackpool. It would have been stealing it. It really would have, but it would have been three yeah. points and I wouldn't have cared less. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's these sort of fine margins. If Austin kept, Austin or Dykes or Gray kept, had like missed 12, 11 shots from 12 chances, like you'd be worried about that, wouldn't you? So at the other end, Senny's got, and unfortunately, in such a crucial role, he's got to... Uh, be getting better at the penalty front um final word on this before we move on to the atmosphere debate Luton is the first game back after the international break at home would you like to see Samfield and Lee Wallace come straight back into the squad I know that there was an under or a B team game or whatever played the other day and both Field and Wallace featured Wallace I think for 60 minutes and Field managed to play the full 90 Anfield was named on the bench against Blackpool. So, you know, they're back to fitness, relatively speaking. What what do we want to see? Um, Wallace starting field come off the bench. Um, I think we're already very sure in the in the left back position, obviously McCallum picking up another mid to long term injury. Um, he's gonna be out until the new year, at least, or Christmas if he's lucky. Um, I think um, Wallace, I think he should be put right back into the thick of it. He's missed three months of action. He'll be frustrated and he'll be gasping for games. And even though he's 34, I still think he'll be raring to go. Michael, what do you think? Sorry about that. Um, I think... um, Unfortunately for Wallace, he might not have a choice. I think he might be back in the first team with the amount of injuries we've got at the moment. Um, I'd like to see him back. I think he's somebody that definitely won over the fans, definitely won over me. And if I'm being honest with you, I still think he's one of the better um, wing-backs in the championship. Um, Field is one that I, I understand in the past, Field's had quite a few injury problems. As much as I would like to see him back in the team, absolutely, I would much prefer we kind of blooded him in a bit slower instead of sort of rushing him back because I think he's going to be a crucial part of our team this season going forward. I think the partnership that he forms or had formed with Johansson is going to be important going forward. So I think it's more important that if we don't have to rush him back, then not to rush him back. But if he starts, I won't be mad. Okay, so moving on from Blackpool to our sort of topic of the week. And this time we're going to be talking about home atmosphere. Now, it was something that came to the attention of many QPR fans because the, the atmosphere from Blackpool's fans was fantastic at the weekend. There was plenty of noise, plenty of energy, all the sort of things that you would want from uh, supporters. So let's look into it a bit. What kind? Of, what would you? What do you guys think um, makes a good atmosphere down at the loft? Um, I think um, when teams playing well, it's a big match. Um, we can really get the stadium pumping. Um, yeah, I think um, it helps when there's there are big boys in town. The team's doing well. Um, we can really get the stadium pumping. I think. Michael, what do you think? Um, when I think back to some of the great games that I've been to um, <clears throat> a lot of the time the atmosphere does come from the size of the opponent that's, that's true everywhere in football um, oftentimes it can be and there's been a lot of these in the recent recent memory it can be a great comeback um, but it's, it's very rare that the atmosphere is jumping from minute one in sort of a run-of-the-mill championship game. It's very rare. Yeah, it's quite hard for that to sort of get going so early on. When you think to the sort of games where we were going from the first whistle or before the first whistle, I think more like the get final game of the season against Leeds when we won the league. 
that was just one big party that you know and the and then the semi-final of the playoff uh of the playoffs when, against Wigan but you know there's obvious reasons there why the atmosphere was fantastic those days because you're on the verge of doing something amazing um I've always thought that it's a bit of a catch-22 you know you, you expect fans to be noisy and you expect them to have a lot to cheer about but like I said if they don't have a lot to cheer about if the team isn't playing well enough why are the fans going to it's, it's a lot harder to motivate yourself and then motivate the players on the pitch to get going. So it kind of needs to be a little bit of give and take. You need to have the fans energetic and excited, but then on the pitch, you need to see some sort of success. Um, you look at the game against Man United, ticks all the boxes at the start of the season. Man United, big opposition in town. We came off a pretty good end to last season. Johansson had just signed at the time as well. So optimism is running high amongst the fans and it created a really good atmosphere. Obviously, then the game was really good as well. So are we sort of like, you know, looking at this, concluding that really for what, you know, to get a good atmosphere at Loftus Road or Kind Prince Foundation Stadium, you need to have at least good performances on the pitch to start mm. with. Not just that, because I remember I went to the Everton game and I made my dad sit in our block. And I remember the atmosphere that night was unforgettable. Um, the fans, everyone in the ground was well up for it. Um, and I think that created a special, special atmosphere. And then obviously we went, we, we went on to leave everything out on the pitch and then went on to win. Um, so that, really helped cap off um, a night which I'm probably not going to forget for the rest of my life um, and yeah I think um, if, it's, if it's a big game with a lot of stake and everyone's up for it then that is a wonderful recipe for a brilliant atmosphere So with all that in mind what do we think is stopping Loftus Road from being incredibly noisy? We don't have to be it doesn't have to be all the time, but just a bit more atmosphere going at the grounds. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's that much of a problem, but clearly there's a, a large section of the fan base that do think that. So if they're, if we aren't creating enough noise, Michael, what do you think the problem is getting in the way? Um, I think that there's a number of things, in my opinion. I've got to be honest. If we want to talk about the root of the atmosphere problem, I think it's an interesting time to talk about it. Maybe it's because we're the best we've been in years. But the, the atmosphere hasn't really been the same since we came down from the Premier League. Um, the first time, to be honest, not even the second time. Um, I think maybe that left such a sour taste in some fans' mouths. But that atmosphere was bordering on toxic for a number of years. I think back to uh, the JFH days. <clears throat> And the Steve McLaren days, the atmosphere was bordering on toxic at times. Um, and I think part of the problem is, if I'm, you know, if I'm being completely honest, I think part of the problem is, is that we are pricing out a new generation of young football fans, young QPR fans, to be honest. I think, I think when you go to Loftus Road now, you kind of see the same faces that you've been seeing for 10, 15 years, really, people that have grew up with the club um, and they're now, like, having kids and they're taking their kids there, which obviously is a great thing. But I think I saw, I think um, Loft for Words a couple of months ago were talking about, oh, you know, does um, does the Loftus Road crowd, does it kind of fit in with the demographic of the area? It doesn't really seem like that. And I would say a big reason for that is um, a lot of people being priced out of coming. Um, I used to live in Wembley. Uh, for people that don't know, Wembley, closest football club to Wembley is QPR. In Wembley, you see QPR shirts all the time. You see QPR shirts everywhere. QPR training shirts, QPR track tops and bottoms, QPR home and away shirts. You know, it, it's not like QPR's fan base is like restricted to the fan base that it was 15 years ago. It was loads of people that are interested in QPR, want to come and watch QPR. 
But you've got to look at it and realise you're looking at what is really, a, if we're being honest, League One standard stadium. Um, and you're paying Premier League prices pretty much to get in. I'm not sure that's very attractive to like kids on their council estate near Loftus Road or kids in council estates in Wembley or Ealing or wherever that maybe want to come and watch QPR and can't. And, you know, I think if you've got that fresh set of eyes coming to watch QPR, they're not watching QPR and groaning when the team don't score in the first five minutes because they're half expecting us to go on and lose because we've been losing for six, seven years straight. But it's just a it's genuine excitement, genuine atmosphere. I'm not saying that's the only part of the problem, but I do think, and I have thought for a while, that that is a big part of the problem. Yeah, and I'm just going to say, looking at the German model, um, I'm not saying we should copy the Germans, but um, I saw this on Twitter the other day that Bayern Munich season ticket prices are £104 and, and they said they want to make football accessible for everyone. And by doing that, you need cheaper ticket prices because some of some some teams, bigger clubs especially, victims of this, um, are often prone to outpricing the game for um, some of the um, families in council estates in places like um, Wembley, Eden, as you said, High Wycombe as well. Um, I think, um, yeah, I think council, I think um, not council estates. I think. Looking at the German model, especially how Bayern Munich do it, I think we do have the cheapest adult season ticket in, in the championship. Um, but £225, even for some people, is still too much money and not accessible. Yeah, and, and I mean, I'm not... Oh, go on, Alex, go on. The thing that Lucas is saying there, and unfortunately Lucas has had to leave the podcast a little bit early today, so no more from him. Um, we, we're not, we haven't kicked him off. He's decided that he's going to... <laughs> he's got something else more important i guess um but no the the thing is like he mentions the lowest season ticket price that's i think the blue season ticket but that's in one particular section of the ground where the viewing is so poor that it has to be reduced by a significant amount to be the cheapest in the in the championship and it is i don't think there's a single seat in loftus road which isn't obscured by some sort of pillar, some other section of the stand or anything. Like it's a very, it's not like you said, Micah, it's not an up-to-date stadium. It's very old. And that, you know, part of the reason that our season tickets are perhaps so high is because we have to pay so much money just to keep the Kind Prince Foundation Stadium active and to keep it going because they need to have some sort of revenue. And unfortunately, that means raising... Well, they haven't raised it. The season ticket prices have stayed the same, haven't they, for like the last four years, which is a pretty big um, success in my view. Um, well, you, you look at clubs like Brentford and Fulham, a lot of my friends that grew up in my area, a lot of people that supported Chelsea would go to Brentford because they would get a cheap ticket on the day or whatever, or it wasn't just Chelsea fans, it was like Arsenal fans as well. But they, if they wanted to go and watch a game of football with their parents, they would go to Brentford because it was very cheap. Obviously, at that point, they were in like League One or League Two. And then you've also got Fulham, who have for years also had a pretty good system of, um, you know, of season tickets. A couple of my friends support Fulham purely because you know, their, their tickets were cheaper than other places and their dads didn't really have much allegiance to any other football club. And because Fulham was local and cheapish, they went there. Um, I think a couple of seasons ago, they gave away a free home shirt with every kid's season ticket or something like that, which is a, you know, that's baffling to me. It would never happen at QPR, but it's a very, very good move just to get someone in your colours and interested um did you have anything else to say on this sort of like money point of view well i think i think what you're saying is interesting because you're right the, the chances are the reason why we do charge so much is that we do have to make up for the stadium and then i think that comes down to maybe a lot of lack of foresight when people are talking about the club needing a new stadium maybe it's you know i don't think anyone's saying that we you know need to be in a 30,000-seater. I think most of us accept we won't be able to fill that. 
think most of us accept that probably the increase in capacity won't go beyond like 20, 22,000. Um, but the need for a stadium maybe isn't to do with capacity. Maybe it's just to do with the fact that it is so expensive and that we can't attract young people to come and try and watch QPR because, you know, half of the game they're staring at a pillar. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. To, to me, I think, obviously, it's a very layered issue, the pricing thing. I understand that there's three, four sides to look at, but I think if I was diagnosing the problem, I would say that is one of the problems. Yeah. Um, I think back to the Sunland game. I was sitting in the premium platinum seats or whatever because but they're you know they're reduced price because it's a cut match um and it was still we were still obscured by a number of pillars and i couldn't actually see the goal that austin scored and then was ruled out i didn't actually see that because half the goal was blocked out by a pillar um so that's that's one of the challenges that we face that even in our most expensive seats it's still not a brilliant viewing experience. And anything that happens right down in front of you, sort of like on the touchline, you can see what was happening down there either. So you're missing quite a lot of, of the pitch. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. I don't know what happens. Um, so yeah, you're just you're missing a lot of the pitch and then one massive, you know, really important area, which is the box, which you can't see. Um, another point that I was going to bring up about this was the attitude of fans towards the players um sometimes there is plenty of noise from fans but that is plenty of negative noise um you know i was just thinking like have our fan base or some sections have they forgotten how to support and you know they're just there just to moan i'll be honest i think part of it again i'm gonna i'm gonna bang on about pricing and what i said before but i think part of it comes down to like i've said we've been rubbish for other than maybe the second half of last season and this season, we've been rubbish for the best part of seven years now. Um, and I think people have just become embittered by it. People, the Premier League, I, I don't think I've seen anything affect our football club more than those Premier League years. Even Flavio and Bernie, as much as the atmosphere went sour then, there was still kind of a, like a togetherness within the fans, like, oh, we're being messed around here. Whereas now those Premier League years kind of turned it into our, everybody picked their scapegoat, whether it was Tony Fernandez, whether it was Jose Bosingua, Mark Hughes, or whoever it was, everybody kind of picked their scapegoat and everybody was kind of angry. And um, like I said, the same people that have been going to QPR for years are the same people to go now. And I think for a lot of them, it's kind of reached the point where they're paying so much for a ticket every week and they're watching the team finish 16th every season pretty much and it's suddenly like oh well now I'm angry about all this stuff that might not actually be um, Josh Goen's fault because he's been here two years but I'm going to take it out on Josh Goen or it might not actually be um, I don't know whoever the latest scapegoat was before it might not actually be Jack Clark's fault but I'm going to take it out on Jack Clark do you know what I mean it's kind of like it's, it's, it's sort of a build-up of things over the years. And I feel like that's why maybe we we need to start trying to get some new fans in because it's just sort of, I feel like, I just feel like it's just embittered so many of our fans in recent years. And I'm not blaming them at all. I'm not blaming them at all, especially if you're a, like somebody that works hard every week and your only real escape from your life is going to football and you're seeing the team finish 16th every year and you're plugging four or five hundred pounds a year into a football club I can understand that can be so frustrating so I think that's that's mainly the part of the problem that's yeah. that's a big part of that problem I think yeah and I guess then like it, it's difficult for some people to get out of that sort of bitter feeling once we you know that we've gone on a bit of a project and they've made and it's it's starting to show that it's coming good but let's not beat around the bush they still made bad decisions on from like last getting relegated from the Premier League to now um and I think there was a lot of what's the point you know of getting promoted because it does feel like uh, Norwich are probably going to be the main example for this and they're going to go through this a lot where they're just sort of fed up of being too good for one league but then rubbish in the league above 
and never fighting and never sort of competing there. What What's your ultimate end goal? Oh, you know, we're not going to be winning the Champions League within five years, but we could accept the fact that we would be promoted and we're going to go for staying in the Premier League and building something. As long as you're seeing progress there, I don't think, I think most fans would be excited by that. But like you said, it's it, there's a bitterness from when we last got relegated. And you mentioned scapegoats and I kind of, it's something that I've absolutely hated from certain sections of the fans. Because I was looking at, I just off the top of my head, trying to think of a couple of scapegoats. Like Carl Henry was vilified quite a bit back in yeah. the Premier League. You've mentioned Josh Scobin already. We know what happened with him. He had to leave eventually. He deleted his Twitter account. Joe Lumley. Joe Lumley was someone that loved the club. Like, I, I don't know if he was a QPR fan by birth, but he, you know, he was, his whole life was QPR. And we ripped him to shreds purely because he was a, a championship goalkeeper. Um, Mide Shadipo, when he was first sort of coming onto the scene, and he's been with us for ages as well. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, I remember, was horrified at the abuse that he got from certain sections of the fans. And then it, you know, last season, Lyndon Dykes, first part of the season was completely written off. He's rubbish, he's useless, whatever. Now he's our most effective striker and everyone loves him. Albert Adoma was written off by quite a few fans after Reading at home last season. And Kevin Gallon as well. Kevin Gallon, especially, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> it, it was just, it doesn't seem to mention that. He doesn't no. seem to mention that much anymore, does he, that he wrote him off? But, um, yeah. yeah. Moses Obarjo has been written off plenty of times this season. And I think he's not the best option at right wing back, but he's a pretty decent player at times. And like you said, against Cardiff, he was fantastic. George Thomas, I know he's not necessarily of chair and Willock standard, but they, he's, a, he's someone that's going to try and he's going to, he's going to want to fight for your team. None of those players are Jose Basinga. I can understand having a strong dislike of Jose Basinga, but I can't understand why you would hate any of those guys because they're just good, honest pros trying to make a way in this really difficult world that is football. And I think that's a massive problem. Like the fact that we as a fan base, instead of trying to support our players, and I know it's difficult at times, and, you know, we've made mistakes. Like you said, the Hasselbank era, the McLaren, these were not good decisions, but you need to support the team rather than immediately get on their backs because it's, they, they, they hear it, they, it, they absorb it and it really clearly does damage them. Um, I think that the one that annoys me the most, and I haven't heard this for a while, but I've heard it a couple of times during our run in last season was, oh, the, these players just don't care enough. Or like, oh, they, 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 they don't, they don't want it enough. Honest to God, like, <laughs> listen, I, I lived through some of those teams. I lived through Sean Mark Phillips, Jose Basingua. I lived through them. I lived through them. I remember it. I remember watching them and seeing exactly what it looked like for a footballer to not actually want it enough, not actually care. I can promise you there's not a single player out there in that QPR squad that doesn't want it. Not a single, every single person that is at that football club wants to be it. Austin's taken a pay cut to be there. Johansson, and pretty much sort of <laughs> engineered the move himself out of Fulham to QPR to be here. Do you know what I mean? Andre Dezel's yeah. come from a League One club and he's proven himself, trying to prove himself in the Championship. Every single one of them players care. They all want to be there. So pe people need to stop with that. I understand it's an easy knee jerk because for three or four years, we had pretty much a whole squad full of players that didn't want to be there. Some of them, like Joey Barton, literally would come out on Twitter and say, I don't actually want to be here. But that is absolutely not. Let's the not case forget, he's anymore. still loved by quite a few fans for some reason. Yeah, there is you a know? section that loves him. Openly hated that us. Him. Said that and we were I, rubbish. I guarantee and, you, whenever you know, he, whenever he writes his book, whatever he, whatever he does, I'm sure he'll have something, uh, some kind of um, attention grabber when it's all said and done. I guarantee you, we won't be remembered fondly. He probably won't even have much to say about Wembley. It won't be remembered fondly. You know. Yeah. <clears throat> is what it is I, I, I don't I don't like the guy oh I didn't like him I didn't want him to come to QPR I don't like him after QPR but like for, for, for people to for people to be like oh yeah you know I saw someone say the other day Joey Barton's the best QPR 
midfield we've had in the last 20 years. Um, um, now, this is going to great with you specifically, isn't it? Because there's a certain Argentinian that you have an unhealthy amount of love for. Well, I think if you have any taste in football, you'd, you'd pick Adam <laughs> or Joey, but, you know, I'm biased. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, but, but my, my, point, my point was, like, if, if you're comfortable putting Joey Barton in those conversations, a guy that said he came to us for the money, and in his, in his debut for us was bragging to the Wolves fans that he was on 80k a week, how on earth can you look at, again, not to come back to him, look at Josh going and be like, oh, he doesn't want it enough. Do you know what I mean? Or watch mm. or watch Johansson have a bad game and be like, oh, Johansson doesn't look like he cares. It's nonsense. It's just nonsense. And I think people need to just let go of that particular era of our football club because it's gone now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that one of the other things that comes up quite a lot is, and it's a particularly small section when you think about it, but the lower loft is um, a family stand. Uh, and quite a lot of people, well, I don't know, it seems to whether quite a lot is the right word to use, but there is a Twitter account set up uh, supposedly in dedication of trying to return it to its former glory or whatever it's called. Um, first things about the family stand, Micah, have you ever sat there or have you ever? Yeah, I sat there quite a few times when I was younger. So you've benefited from it as a you know young family, you used the family stand. Yeah, yeah. And how so how long were you there for like and it's, it's you and your you have a brother as well that goes don't you uh it was mostly when i went with my dad but it's been a couple of times where i've gone my, my brother's a liverpool fans but they do have a keen interest in um in qpr um typically because when we win my dad's a lot more generous but they do have do have an interest in qpr so we didn't always sit there but quite a few times we would sit there let's put it that way Okay, yeah. Um, and, you know, I sat there, um, I had a season ticket there for at least a, a year, maybe two years. Um, so it's interesting because you, you mentioned the fact that we need to bring through a new sort of group of QPR fans. And that's not necessarily QPR fans who've got parents interested in the club already. A family stand surely is actually part of developing fan base for the future yeah definitely um so I, I don't you know and i was asking my dad for the start of this you know i can't really apparently the family stand i started in 2012 now that was on wikipedia and i don't feel like that's correct i feel like it was a little bit earlier than that so definitely before that that's yeah definitely before that. i thought it was more sort of like like my dad, me and my dad agreed it would be around sort of 2008. I thought that was... That's what I would have thought as well, yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure I went to a few few games and then the golf, golf air shirt era. Yeah. In the family yeah. stands. Yeah. Um. So the, it wasn't... Uh, yeah, asking my dad about it, he sort of... And, you know, he's just one man, so he's not going to be, you know, encompass of all opinions. But he was saying that to be honest, it wasn't really that noisy beforehand anyway. Right? And it hasn't really changed much. Um, but some people seem to think that it's the worst thing to happen to Loftus Road in years. I don't know what you think, Micah. I don't know. It's funny because when I, when I talk to Dad about the Loftus Road atmosphere, he says that actually for a long time, Loftus Road was never really that noisy other than for a couple of years under Ollie when we were in League One. Mm. Um it's always obviously been like when it's rocking, it's rocking because it's so close to the ground. But he, he, he says it was never really kind of like, a, you know, like a loud, like scary stadium. It's just sort of like a great stadium with a great atmosphere sometimes. So I, I, I can't really I can't really comment too much on the loft. I understand that like it's been a few years now that people have been on about changing it from a family stand. Um <laughs> I've got to be honest, I'm not actually sure what, maybe it's because I'm a young fan, but I'm not actually sure what difference it would make because then you've just got to put a family stand somewhere else then, haven't you? So, yeah. so kind of what, <laughs> what difference is, I guess it's behind the goal. I guess that does help. But as we've just been talking about, people have been complaining that we're not singing and we're not loud enough. So what's the point? 
not singing and not being loud behind the goal. We're just moving noise from one section to another. It feels like, but yeah, I mean, you know, these people I assume st- who f- that want this uh, change, I assume they still go. It'd be a pathetic reason not to go and support your team because there's a family stand. There's plenty yeah. of other space in Loftus Road. So, okay, it may be disappointing that, you know, what, well, I mean, like nearly 20 years ago, you sat there, or well, over 20 years now, isn't it? Nearly? No, whatever. But like, you know, quite a long time ago, you sat there with some friends and you had to move because it was it became a family stand. I don't think that really happened too much, but why would you stop going to QPR just because they want to get more families to come down? I just think it's a really weird thing to sort of say. Um, and these fans around the grounds, why aren't you making the noise now? Why would it? Why, why would you sitting in the loft end, the lower loft, which actually is one of the worst places to sit in a football ground, behind the goal, low down. You can't see what's happening. I hate it every time I go away from home, specifically sort of like Fulham or Brentford and you're so low down that you just can't read what's actually happening in the game. You have to be quite high up to actually understand it. I don't mm. understand. I don't, you know, what is the, this sort of great desire to sit at the lower loft end? It's, it's a rubbish end for football. It's one of the worst positions to sit. Um, and yet there's a desire to make it safe standing. I, I don't know. I think safe standing would be nice. Um, yeah, I'm not against safe standing, to be fair. Yeah, not think, say standing. I think my he might not thank thank me for this, but my dad probably won't like it. I think he would be too tired by the end of the game. <laughs> I think a lot of the people that at my dad's age that had stand in when they were younger just <laughs> I think they they're seeing it through rose tinted glasses and they're not they wouldn't be able to cope with it now. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting one isn't it because when we obviously I saw you at the um at the Cardiff game, yeah. But uh, we, I obviously went my dad and my two brothers. We sat in a, the railed seat and um and we didn't sit down for the whole game and we totally forgot that we didn't even sit down. Mm. Uh, and we just thought it was great. We we thought it was really great. And obviously nowadays, anyway, in my experience, away atmospheres tend to be sort of more lively than home atmospheres nowadays. So maybe maybe the conversation we're having is actually a wider symptom of football in general. I don't know. It's probably something for a um, Cardiff or Bristol City or someone else's podcast to talk about. But, um, I mean, we, we thought that safe standing was really great. And I think, you know, if that's, you know, if people do want that atmosphere, if you're forced to stand up or it's uncomfortable to sit down, I think that's one way you could improve it. Where, where we put that in Loftus Road is another question because I think it would be wasted behind the goal to be honest with you. I think it would be better at one of the sides of the pitch, Ursuline Road maybe, I don't know. But I think it's probably got not to against one place where there's a bit more space because that was the one benefit of the new stadium at Cardiff. It is a nice stadium and there was lots of space there for them to put in the stand in and it didn't feel like you were being squashed in. Obviously, that's mm. what safe standing is there for because if it weren't for you know Hillsborough and stuff like that, his standing would still probably be a thing, um, but that it needs to be done in a way that everyone feels safe and is safe. Um, I I really enjoyed it as well, the safe standing, but I would sort of think in um, from a younger child's point of view, when it was mentioned years and years ago when I wasn't as tall as I am now, I thought, you know, for a child, it's a... Oh, horrible idea having to stand up for 90 minutes of football it's so like it really only pleases someone of our age or you know I don't want to sort of call people old but maybe you get to the sort of age of 50 it kind of might become a bit more difficult to do that every week um Mm. so you've got to have areas still that are seating um yeah definitely you know maybe it would improve the atmosphere because then people that could stand and wanted to stand will sort of gravitate there. Um, and then they are more likely perhaps to make more noise as the sort of younger voices of the club. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Cardiff because I wanted to bring something up, specifically some of the chants that were sung. And we, have, we are running out of time. So unfortunately, we can't spend too much time on this. 
but I mentioned it in my away day fan diary, and I don't know what you think about this, Micah, but there was two song song sung. One of them was the Chelsea Rent Boys chant, and then there was another song directed at a female Cardiff fan who just basically did a gesture back to the QPR fans. It wasn't a rude gesture. She just gestured back. And some QPR fans decided to sing about where she would, or whether she performed a specific sexual act. Now, I do remember. That made me feel like really uncomfortable. I didn't like it at all. Um, And I said, like I said, I wrote about it in the fan diary and I just thought it was, you make, all these sort of gestures are made and we don't, people say they don't want homophobia and sexism and racism in football. And there you have two examples of it happening. Like that's not good atmosphere. That's actively saying to certain fans, you're not actually welcome. I don't know what you think. Yeah. I, I, I missed the I read your um away day fan diary by the day by the way it's a really great read for anybody that's listening it's got a bit of reading that they want to do um so I do remember reading about the what was directed at the at the girl I didn't I don't remember hearing that but I do remember the the Chelsea chant um obviously that chant directed towards a young girl obviously completely unacceptable. Again, I again I didn't hear it, so I can't really comment. But obviously, completely unacceptable was not on, um, <clears throat> and the, obviously the the Chelsea one. That's been a sort of a not really a hot topic, but it's, it's been discussed because obviously that's a chant that's sang by quite a few of the the Spurs fans, and Arsenal fans, and chanted it in Chelsea games. And obviously, Chelsea have sort of asked. Um, not to do it because obviously it has some very homophobic undertone, well, not even undertones, just homophobic. Um, it's a shame. I'll be honest with you. It's a shame. Um, obviously, we're one of the most sort of like forward-thinking, progressive clubs. Um, obviously, it hasn't been picked up by any of the news outlets or anything, but it is, it is quite embarrassing, really. Um, I think... I think with away days, sometimes fans just just a little bit overexcited and a little bit sort of boisterous and they've been drinking and they suddenly think that, you know, because they're not at home or whatever because it's a championship game, certain things are acceptable. It's not acceptable. It's absolutely not acceptable. Um, and again, it's, it's a shame that a club as forward-thinking, as diverse as ours, is kind of having to, um, having to deal with this, unfortunately. Yeah. Absolutely. And it really is a, like I said, it's a kind of a hot topic because Liverpool fans sung it towards Chelsea fans earlier on in the season. And there was a fantastic... Oh, it was the Liverpool fans, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, sorry. It was the Liverpool fans. Klopp. I, I, I love Jurgen Klopp. I think he's fantastic. But this was just another sort of example of him being a fantastic leader. And I'm not saying Warburton would have to do something like this, but after the after the game, he sat down with a member of um, a Liverpool uh, gay supporters group and they chatted about it and they discussed it and they talked exactly why it was a homophobic chant and why it shouldn't be ch- sung and if you can find it I'd encourage you to go and you know listeners to go and actually watch that interview because it was a really really good honest bit of a bit moment where you know, they examined exactly what went wrong. And if you still want to find more information, I just Googled it earlier on. Um, and there was a fan- really good article um, from the Liverpool Offside website uh, by Mary Lewis called Unpacking the Homophobia Inherent in the Chelsea Rent Boys Chant. And again, I would urge people to go and read that and understand why this song really just shouldn't be sung anymore, regardless of your hatred of Chelsea. You shouldn't be hating them because of, a, you know, something that happened quite a long time ago, which is homophobic. That is wrong. And it's no different to saying, to singing this, a racist song or monkey chants or anything like that, because it, it's on the same level. 
it's racism, it's homophobia, it's sexism, and it shouldn't be allowed and it shouldn't be encouraged because we want a fan base that is diverse and, you know, we want everyone to feel welcomed as a QPR fan. And it's not sort of PC gone mad to say that. That's just the reality of the situation. Yeah. Um, well said. Cheers. <laughs> um, so I think we're going to... Uh, leave it there as the zoom call is rapidly running out of time so um obviously thank you to lucas if he listens back to this for joining us shortly and thank you to micah as well for also coming on i think over a really good chat about the atmosphere it's been a good podcast to record yeah been great my pleasure yeah so um thanks for listening i hope you've all enjoyed the podcast uh please do follow our generation on Twitter at our generation net and follow the pod on Spotify. So you can keep up to date with all the latest episodes. Also, if you haven't realized we have returned to Apple podcasts. So if that's a little bit easier for you than using Spotify, please do listen to us on there and you can find us by searching our name, which is our generation on air brackets, a QPR podcast. So do that if you so wish. Uh, thanks for listening and come on you ours.